You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And this is Ankit Panda, your co-host, recording also in Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Ankit? Uh, good, Katie. Good to be back. Uh, we've got a lot to continue our uh, discussion from last episode on. Yes, we do. We are in the midst of our sort of top eight geopolitical flashpoints, hot spots, hot topics from 2023. Uh, and uh, just to remind you, if you didn't listen to the first episode, you should go back and listen to that one. Uh, but this is not a ranked list. Uh, these are just a, a list that Ankit and I compiled, sort of shooting ideas back and forth. Uh, and so I'm going to kick us off with number five on our list, uh, which is Central Asia's renewed centralness. You know, as 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 the resident Central Asia uh, voice on this podcast, I had to pick something in Central Asia, but it was very easy uh, this year. You know, 2023 has undoubtedly been one of the busiest years diplomatically for the Central Asian states. You know, the five Central Asian leaders met with China's Xi Jinping in May in Xi'an. They met with EU President Charles Michel in June in Cholpanada, which is in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, they met with U.S. President Joe Biden in September on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly, which actually was the first time a U.S. president has ever met with all five Central Asian leaders at once. So it was a pretty momentous occasion. And then right after that, all five Central Asian presidents uh, flew off to Germany to meet with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Um, and so and, and, you know, and that's just the sort of leader level meetings. There have been dozens of uh, ministerial and lower level trips, both in Central Asia and then around the world. And, you know, I think. There are several drivers of this. You know, the war in Ukraine is an obvious one, uh, certainly driving European and U.S. interest in Central Asia for a variety of sort of subsequent reasons, from energy to sanctions enforcement. Um, Chinese interest in Central Asia, you know, has been building over the past decade. In 2023, we marked the 10-year anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, and sort of China is looking towards the future and its future sort of rhetorical tools to sort of talk about how it wants to sort of orchestrate uh, its its own policies and its engagement with the world. And then I think sort of the, the third sort of thing that I like to mention with this is, you know, the end of the war in Afghanistan in 2021 is also, I think, a factor that kind of freed up at least mental space for Western diplomats to think more broadly about Central Asia. Uh, and so I think we're seeing some of that now. Uh, Afghanistan remains an important issue. It certainly is to the Central Asian states, but it, it, it no longer drives the engagement with the region, which had been the case for the last 20 years. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I, I teased Ankit, told him I would ask him about Central Asia. Um, so everybody get ready for the dodge. Well, I won't dodge entirely because I think I think <laughs> what I will say about this, uh, you know, and when we talked about this on the on the podcast a few months ago, uh, I was I was a lot fresher uh, on this. Actually, having had my um, my cab ride in Berlin interrupted by uh, Kazakh President Tokayev's motorcade, um, I was I was certainly um, interested in uh, in in these broader trends. I, th I think what I would say about this, though, Katie, is that you know I remember you know we talked about Central Asia pretty quickly after February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two, after the Ukraine war began and the implications of the war on on this region more broadly uh, and its constituent states. And I think this is exactly the kind of behavior that you know we should have expected to see. And you're absolutely right that with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, both to the north and to the south, uh, Central Asia, I think, has seen a significant change uh, in its regional geopolitical context that I think incentivizes this kind of outreach, right? Um, and I think, I think it's also positive uh, that Central Asian states, I think, are looking to engage uh, with the United States and the West uh, and China, I mean, really on 
their own uh, initiative and independence here. I mean, for for what the region can offer holistically, not just with in relation to Russia or or in relation to supporting stability uh, in Afghanistan. So I think that's quite interesting uh, and um, and striking. Uh, and certainly, I think. Um, I mean, I would broadly expect that to continue into the next year, but um, am, I, am I right about that? Do you see any risks uh, derailing this um, broader trend line? I don't necessarily see risks of this trend being derailed, but 2024 will just not be as busy a year. Um, there's a couple of unknowns. Uh, it, I don't think that, that China plans to meet annually with the five Central Asian leaders. I, I believe they're going to do that every other year, so there won't be a China... Central Asia Summit. It's unclear, or at least nobody has told me yet, that the U.S. plans to have a, mm -hmm. U, a, a C5 plus one leaders meeting every year. I expect the foreign ministers level meeting to continue and for them to go hard on that. Um, but I just don't see Biden meeting with, um, you know, the five Central Asian presidents in September, you know, right before the U.S. elections, uh, meeting with these five uh, essentially autocrat autocratic uh, dictators. Uh, I just don't I don't see that happening. And, and so we can we can revisit that if it happens in September. Um, but I think the pace of those diplomatic engagements will necessarily slow a little bit and it moves into the phase of operationalizing the things that have been agreed to. So take the the US Central Asia uh, dynamic uh, in in the joint statement that came out of, of the meeting in September, one of the things that was mentioned is, is a critical minerals um, group. And so seeing if that actually starts working um, and what mm -hmm. kind of engagements fit, like tactically start happening as opposed to just sort of statements, you know, high level meetings are great and, and joint statements are wonderful to analyze. But what happens after those, I think, is the thing of, of more importance. So I think we'll see in 2024 how useful um, those meetings have been, even if we don't see that same high level of engagement, we'll actually see um, activity below that, that that will be worth watching. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's continue our our uh, list here, uh, hopping again regionally, uh, this time over to Oceania, where we'll reflect a little bit on Australia. Uh, and, and, you know, Australia in itself, obviously, uh, doesn't tell us much about what we're talking about here. But, but really, it's about uh, I mean, first of all, in March 2023, we had the finalization of the AUKUS partnerships practical uh, consultative period on how exactly the AUKUS program would proceed, uh, particularly on the uh, pillar one issue, which is uh, the nuclear powered submarine. Right. AUKUS has two pillars, the second pillar being uh, the broader uh, set of defense, industrial cooperation, investment in long range missiles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and to this, Katie, I'd actually also add Australia's mid-year uh, defense strategic review. Uh, which is interesting because it, uh, it follows up and builds on the 2020 Defense Strategic Update, which revised the 2016 Defense White Paper and over these three documents. I think you really see a, uh, a story being told about how Australia sees uh, its own national defense requirements uh, and the probability of high-intensity interstate conflict, um, whereas in 2016 that wasn't a big concern, uh, declining ties with China, growing concerns about Chinese behavior in the region, and the possibility of a conflict over the Taiwan Strait in particular, I think, have led Australia to this new um, broad approach to its defense strategy. And the defense review is very interesting. I mean, Australia uh, moving away from... Um, land-based forces to more uh, expeditionary power projection capabilities with long-range missiles, supplementing some of the uh, anticipated capabilities that'll be in, uh, implemented through AUKUS. But I think it might just be useful um, to just go over the um, 
the plan, right? The AUKUS, uh, the AUKUS plan, because I think uh, you know some of the listeners might not recall because we did talk about this uh, several several episodes ago at the at the start of the year. So the broader plan is that. Um, beginning basically now, um, Australian military and civilian personnel will start to embed with the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy um, to better understand the operation of nuclear submarines. Uh, and, you know, going into next year, this will also include training and development exercises uh, and U.K. submarine visits to Australia will also probably kick off by 2025 or 2026. Um and then by 2027, uh, the U.S. and the U.K. will plan to initiate forward rotations of their nuclear-armed uh, attack submarines, or sorry, nuclear-propelled ca- uh, nuclear attack submarines to Australia uh, and um, further promote the development of Australia's own indigenous expertise. Uh, and then in 2030s, this is the real kind of sticking point for the United States, is uh, the U.S. will sell Australia three Virginia-class nuclear-powered attack submarines and potentially two more if necessary. This has raised a lot of concerns about just the U.S. submarine industrial base and whether making good on this AUKUS requirement will uh, leave the U.S. fleet where it needs to be. Uh, And then finally, by the late 2030s, the plan is to deliver what will be known as SSN AUKUS. Uh, That is the special um, Australia-specific nuclear-powered conventionally armed submarine that the U.K., uh, in coordination with Russia, um, with uh, Australia, will uh, develop and deliver uh, potentially by you know the early 2040s, practically. So that's a little overview of the of the AUKUS plan. But um, Katie, when you look at uh, Australia and you look back on the year, um, what are what are your big takeaways? I mean, certainly on the the geopolitical angle, AUKUS is is the is the top line um, story there. Uh, I, I think maybe one thing worth worth mentioning to listeners is that. You know the the provision of those uh, the three nuclear powered um, Virginia class submarines uh, selling those to Australia that was subject to congressional approval, which finally happened in mid December when the NDAA was passed. But there was a period where it wasn't clear if that would be passed, and so I think that that sort of first hurdle um, was 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 cleared. But as, as you pointed out, you know it's going to be a long a long journey, and so I, I think. Um, certainly what happens in the U.S. election and what happens in the U.S. economy um, and in the U.S. sort of submarine um, fleets uh, capabilities um, certainly will impact this process. And in Australia, you know, it's also subject to its own domestic debate and, and questions both about uh, the nuclear angle of this and then and then the um, just the the burden of, of taking on these submarines and, and, and what that entails. And so I think those are certainly um things to watch. Um, and then just sort of as, as, a, as a bonus on the domestic angle in, in Australia, you know, there was a vote in October um, whether to include an Indigenous voice in, in the parliament and that failed uh, pretty miserably amid a pretty nasty campaign. Um, and, and, and so I just wanted to, to mention that because I think we sometimes overlook Australia's uh, internal domestic um, politics. And so it, it has sort of... Um, I think, uh, an influence on the the wider position of Australia in the Pacific in particular. Um, because, you know, as Australia is trying to sort of rebuild these relationships with Pacific Island countries, um, there's a lot of questions um, about both indigenous issues and respect for the region and that kind of thing. And then one other thing I wanted to mention this this angle is at the same time that we sort of have this rapprochement between the U.S. and China, we saw a similar um, smoothing out of relations between China and Australia. Uh, Australian Prime Minister Albanese traveled to to China and met with Xi Jinping um, this fall. And so I think there is 
a, a, a stabilization in that relationship. And that that is something that we'll have to keep an eye on as the year goes on. And certainly as the AUKUS program progresses, um, because even if you don't write China on the submarines, China thinks that those submarines are for it. So um, I, I think they will be watching very closely. Yeah. So, you know, I, th- I don't I don't necessarily think that Australia will be on our list next year, because I think this was an interesting year with the review and the update and, and some of the domestic political turns and the and the geopolitical term of China. So I think I think a lot of uh, the next few years for Australia, I think, really will be, uh, you know, will be will be kind of evaluating uh, how well all of this is going to be implemented. Uh, I think the big yeah. concern a lot of folks have with AUKUS is, is AUKUS going to be derailed potentially by political changes in the United States, by just, you know, the, the tendency of large, ambitious defense undertakings to be bogged down mm-hmm. by budget overruns and other logistical difficulties. So um, it will be, I think, uh, a lot of kind of um, the rubber hitting the road on a lot of these plans over the next few years. But uh, we'll certainly be uh, looking at that uh, more broadly at the diplomat. Um, so, so we're almost at our uh, at the we're on the final two items on our list of eight uh, that we began with the last episode. Uh, for listeners keeping track of numbers, we're on number seven now. Again, not in order, but uh, this one I think is a really interesting one, uh, and, and certainly I think one that's been welcomed here in Washington, which is growing trilateral cooperation between Japan, South Korea, and the United States. Uh, right? I mean, this was. Really, I think, uh, gave some folks whiplash if you just think back to where Japan-South Korea ties were just 18 months ago, uh, before Mm -hmm. President Yoon was inaugurated uh, in South Korea. Uh, They were in a very bad place, right? I mean, just in a way that was unimaginable uh, that we would see the Camp David summit in the United States with the three leaders meeting. Uh, And then, Katie, you know, we're recording this uh, in um, late December 2023, and just a few days ago... Uh, the U.S., Japan, and South Korea activated a new uh, trilateral missile warning data sharing mechanism that fuses Japanese and South Korean radars with sort of U.S. assistance, kind of a very concrete demonstration of the benefits of trilateral cooperation. So I think I think there's a lot to talk about here. But, um, you know, why don't we why don't we sort of kick off with um, your impressions of the politics of this? Because, uh, you know, I'm going to pull you out a little bit more on domestic politics, given what you just had to say about Australia. But I think, <laughs> you know, domestic politics, I think, were obviously the big concern about the sustainability of trilateral cooperation, particularly uh, South Korean domestic politics uh, and actually, you know, Japanese domestic politics, including intra liberal Democratic Party LDP dynamics. So w- what are your observations on on the domestic political components of this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there was some really clever timing employed um, by by everyone involved. If you sort of look back at the timeline of events, you know, in, in March, uh, you know, South Korean President Yoon visited Tokyo and the two leaders, you know, announced that they were really restoring relations and res- resuming shuttle diplomacy. But even before that visit, it was announced that Yoon would be making a state visit in April to the United States. And so it was sort of, you know, a, a bit a bit of sleight of hand uh, in, in a way of, of communicating to the South Korean public, you know, the relationship with the United States is very strong and we're getting this state visit. And then he goes to Japan uh, and makes this big announcement. And then you had, um, I think it was May, was when uh, Kishida, the Japanese prime minister, visited Seoul. And so you saw the the sort of opening moves, I think, were really well orchestrated. Um, just a, a little bit of a, a preview. One of the articles in the upcoming uh, magazine for The Diplomat covers the uh, 
sort of two competing trilaterals in Northeast Asia, the US, Japan, South Korea, and then the Japan, South Korea, China uh, trilateral, which have sort of taken different trajectories. But one of the sort of core facets of that article is this remarking on this, this clever positioning, but also this sort of ebbs and flows of Yoon's popularity within South Korea. And I think it, you know, the South Korean presidents can only serve for one term. So he's not trying to sort of win himself a second term because that's not possible and so i think that that freed you up to do this kind of thing um where that might sort of meet uh, a brick wall is when south korea does uh, go to presidential elections uh, the the pendulum could swing the other way domestic on the political scene in 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 korea and that could kind of upset this this uh, institutionalization so i think that's also one of the reasons why we see I wouldn't say it's a rush because I think you can't really rush these things, but you see these efforts to really nail down, as as you just mentioned, the mechanisms of this trilateral cooperation. Because once you have sort of set up a bureaucracy and a system, it's hard to take that apart so easily. And so I think, especially if it proves useful. Um, so I, I think certainly on the South Korean angle, that's some of the interesting politics. Um, I'm I'm curious what you think about sort of the impact of both Japanese politics and then and the U.S. politics on on this, because I think South Korea is all, often the one that's talked about as as the one that could upset mm -hmm. this relationship. Um, but I, I think we should give sort of due course to both the United States and Japan and their their ability to also upset this. It takes takes three to tango in this case. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., I think this has been one of those no brainer good ideas, right? That promoting trilateralism is in U.S. interest. Uh, it has broadly bipartisan support. It's not a politically contentious issue. Um, in, in Japan, you know, Japan, I think, is very interesting because uh, it um, cooperation with South Korea. So, you know, as you noted, Yoon took the first step of taking the politically costly uh, initiative to um, pursue cooperation with Japan. Uh, you know, he was also operating at his popularity floor domestically, so he couldn't really get any more unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So he, I think, expended that um, whatever political capital he had to try to uh, communicate to Japan that a new government was in town and that the door was open for um, both bilateral cooperation and trilateral cooperation. In Japan, I think what's been interesting is Prime Minister Kishida, um, obviously, uh, you know, he was he was very well positioned uh, in in the first six months of this year, not really facing any electoral challenges, uh, either the diet or in a general election. Um, but really, I think it was the issue of um, managing uh, internal liberal democratic Party politics, where the more hawkish, ultra-conservative wing of the LDP was rather mistrustful of South Korea more generally uh, because of some of these um, domestic political problems uh, in South Korea and sort of needing broader assurances from Seoul before the cooperation could proceed. So Kishida did, I think, take a little little bit of a while. You know, I think it took a few months before Japan was able to actually reciprocate some of South Korea's uh, risk-taking. But you know, in a way, it, it really doesn't matter now in hindsight, right? Because I think the moment we got to Camp David and then um, the articulation of some of the broader objectives and now the activation of this new missile warning system, which, as you noted, makes uh, institutionalizes things. I think the expectation is that um, if this cooperation does begin to flag, it's probably going to be because of the U.S. or South Korea, right? I mean, the U.S., uh, if 
if President Trump returns, uh, that could affect trilateralism. I mean, that wasn't something that, of course, the Trump, the first Trump administration gave much attention to. Um, but the other factor I want to note here is the external dimension of all this, right? I think historically we've seen trilateral cooperation uh, increase. I mean, during the second term of the Obama administration, for instance, when Japan and South Korea finalized their GSOMIA agreement, which I think is another good mm -hmm. example of the institutionalized cooperation, making it difficult for countries to renege on their commitments. Um, and North Korea was making a rapid progress. That's been an accelerant. And that's certainly true, I think, in the current um, current geopolitical environment. There is no diplomacy with North Korea. North Korean capabilities are quickly expanding. And so I think out of their own national security interests uh, as well, uh, Japan and South Korea are drawn towards um, cooperating trilaterally. Um, but I think, Katie, that brings us to the last agenda item on our list, uh, which I think does, does does flow rather well. And, and you already alluded to President Yoon's um, state visit to the United States in April 2023. Uh, and this is the Washington Declaration uh, that was announced during that state visit. Really interesting document. Uh, quick update for our listeners on that. Basically a software upgrade to the U.S.-South Korea alliance, um, but also addressing implicitly U.S. concerns about the debate in South Korea about acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, this came just a few months after President Yoon publicly mooted the possibility that South Korea could develop nuclear weapons as a policy option. And so the Washington Declaration takes a page out of the old Cold War playbook when the U.S. was worried about allied proliferation, proliferation by countries like West Germany in the 1960s, and offers South Korea new forms of reassurance, uh, including the creation of a new nuclear consultative group uh, that just actually had a plenary meeting here in Washington uh, in mid-December uh, 2023, uh, but also sets up a new commitment for President Biden to communicate with the South Korean president uh, before any decision to use nuclear weapons is made uh, and potentially allowing the South Korean president to also make requests of the United States. And in exchange for all of these reassurances, the South Korean side offers um, its own reassurances to the United States that it will observe and hold to its nuclear nonproliferation commitments. Uh, and so there's been a lot of work in the months since to implement this, uh, implement the nuclear consultative group. Separately, the U.S.-South Korea alliance has also adopted a new tailored deterrent strategy towards North Korea. So I think I think this is a pretty uh, significant um, shift uh, in in the U.S. South Korea alliance, uh, and uh, I think uh, really one of the one of the bigger ticket items uh, for me thinking back on the year, Katie. But um, what are what are your thoughts on the Washington Declaration? Yeah, I mean it certainly was a very strong signal on on the strength of of the alliance and sort of a, a reaffirmation of of the commitments. Um, and and I think that that's a single signal not just to South Korea but to to the rest of Asia more broadly. Um, both sort of friend and foe alike can sort of observe this recommitment. Um, and you see, you see this kind of thing in in several other aspects. I think um, in in U.S. a lot various alliances in Asia and just sort of a, a sort of a recommitment of the promises already made. Um, and 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 because I think, and we've discussed this a lot. The the common complaint about the United States in Asia is that the United States will get distracted by a crisis somewhere else, um, whether it's Europe or whether it's the Middle East, whether it was Afghanistan. Um, and and in so much as those criticisms were or were not true, uh, it, it remains a thing people discuss. And so something like the Washington Declaration um, sort of pushes back on those sort of naysayers uh, of the alliance about what the U.S. is committed to and what the U.S. is willing to do. Um, of course, I think we all hope we never get to the day where we have to find out, but um, it's it's been the, the, the lines have been drawn in the sand at least, so we shall see. Absolutely. Well, 
I think that brings us to the end of 2023 on the Asia Geopolitics podcast. Uh, Katie, it's been a lot of fun this year uh, talking through uh, a lot of the issues we just talked about on this episode and the last one, uh, but more broadly. So uh, thanks a lot for uh, continuing to co-host. Yeah, absolutely. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Ankit, about the uh, geopolitics of Asia. Uh, I'm Before I let you lead us out, I'm going to put in one more plug for The Diplomats magazine. Uh, our January issue uh, traditionally covers uh, the cover story focuses on our outlook for Asia in 2024, uh, in which we have 11 uh, of our most favorite authors, including Ankit and myself, um, though we don't have to be your most favorite, uh, laying out what we think that you should pay attention to in Asia. And so I, I would like to think of it as a preview uh, a what to expect for the coming year. And I encourage listeners to check it out. Uh, it'll be out uh, around the new year. That's right. Yeah. Time to look forward. Uh, and on that note, I guess the last thing left to do is to wish all of our listeners a very happy new year uh, and happy holidays more generally. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you back on the show in 2024. Uh, but as always, uh, if you have suggestions for Katie and myself for what you'd like to see covered in the new year, do contact us uh, and don't forget to subscribe or leave us a review. We really do appreciate that. So with that, uh, we'll close it out and we'll see you back in the new year.